So last week we started talking about the Bible, this series about the Bible, and why do we go into the Bible? Why do we do it? And we saw last week that really when it comes to the Bible, we have one very clear choice. There's really two things. There's this just what it is. We can look at the Bible and we can say, you know what, this is a total waste of time. Or we can go to the Bible and say, these are God's very words given to me for instruction. There's no middle ground. We talked about that last week. There's no middle ground. It's a popular idea that, oh, maybe something is in the middle. Maybe we can just sort of say it's sort of a good thing. And, but there's no middle ground because of what the Bible says about itself. It's either a total waste of time or it's God's words. And each of us has to decide personally. I can't decide that for you. Your parents can't decide that for you. Your friends can't decide that for you. You have to decide for yourself. Is this God's word or is it a waste of time? We talked about that. And that's what we're doing in this series. We want to reinforce why we as a church believe these are God's words, right? We would we'd end up on the one side. We'd be convinced of that. And part of that, the first part that we're talking about here and last week and this week, is that the Bible is unique. The Bible is a unique book. There's nothing like it in the history of the world. So we started looking at three different attributes of the Bible. I'm just going to review them today for us. The first one we talked about is that the Bible is infallible. When we say infallible, we mean... It's incapable of being wrong. It's incapable of being wrong. We read the Bible, and we see that from cover to cover, it is coherent, it is consistent, and it is easy to understand. And you go, well, that's fine. I could write a book that's coherent, consistent, and easy to understand. But we have to remember, the Bible is actually 66 books written by 40 different authors over the span of several centuries, many centuries, and they weren't even necessarily intending to write things that would go together. And yet in the midst of that, it is coherent, it is consistent, it's easy to understand. And now some would say, hey, the Bible has contradictions. The Bible has contradictions. But as we talked about last week, in actuality, those contradictions are really differences. They're not contradictions, they're just differences. So they're really accusing you of having some differences in it. And that brought us to our second attribute, which is that the Bible is inerrant, which means it's without error. And that's a bold claim. It's a bold claim to say something doesn't have any errors, right? And so really, as we saw last week, what we're really talking about when we talk about inerrancy is we're talking about precision. Is the Bible precise enough to be considered this? Is it precise enough? And so we talked about how all of us are perfectly comfortable in our daily lives with some level of imprecision, right? We talked about when I ask your age, you don't tell me down to the second or the day or the month. We talk about distance. We talk about time and so on and so forth. We talk about, okay, we're all comfortable with imprecision. And really those who accuse the Bible of having contradictions, are really pointing out small imprecisions that are usually just in eyewitness accounts, two eyewitness accounts, two different views of things. And even so, we looked at three tests. There were three tests for whether we can tell if it's inerrant or not. We could say, okay, there's a bibliographic test. Are we reading what was actually written? What was originally written? Are we reading that or has it been changed? And we saw that, yet the evidence shows... We're reading what was originally written. Second test is the internal test. What does the Bible say about itself? Does the Bible even claim to be a book that's worthwhile, that's eyewitness accounts, that's historical, that's inerrant? And the Bible does. The Bible describes itself as a historical account of actual events. Then we looked at an external test. Do other sources verify that the Bible is historical, that it is an account of events? And we saw that, yes, there are many writings and all kinds of archaeology 
that confirm that that's the case. So we concluded the Bible is unique, being inerrant. The third attribute we looked at last week is we said it's complete. It is complete, meaning nothing needs to be added to it. We're not missing something. We looked at the qualifications for what is it that would make something need to do that, right? What, why do we have the things that are in? Why do we not have the things that aren't in it? And we determined from looking at that that we go, yep, what's there is what we need. We're not missing something. And then we looked at that idea of personal revelation and said, well, what about God speaking to me or speaking to somebody? Is that equal or an equivalent? And we just saw that that cannot add to the revelation that's in the Bible. So today, we're going to pick up right where we left off and go on to the fourth attribute. Like I said last week, this is sort of a a two-part message. And we're going to look at four more attributes today about the Bible that make it unique. So the next one we're going to look at today is we would say that the Bible is authoritative. The Bible is authoritative. Now, as you can see on the screen there, I put up the definition of authority. And authority means having the power to influence or command thought, opinion, or behavior. Power to influence or command thought, opinion, or behavior. Now, when you look at that, you might say, so what? So what? Lots of books do this. Lots of books claim to do that. Lots of people can say, yep, there's an authority and it can influence people. Things like the Koran, the Book of Mormon, Seven Habits of Highly Effective People, anything that Oprah says we should look at, right? Yep, that has authority. And you know what? Not just books, but people. People can say they have authority. Oh, do people have the power to influence? Sure they do. Politicians, I guess. I'm not influenced by politicians, but some people are influenced by politicians. Right? The religious leaders can influence people. Motivational speakers can influence people. I guess Oprah can influence people, right? They go, okay, well, that's what's the deal. But there's a difference between authority and authoritative. Authoritative really means able to be trusted as accurate and true. Able to be trusted as accurate and true. So the Bible is not just an authority, it's authoritative. The Bible has the power to influence because it is trusted and true. In other words, the Bible is the final authority. It is the last word. It's the last word. And you go say, okay, fine. Fine that you say that. Is that just you saying that, Greg? Is that just you Christians? You just say, oh, it's the authority. Are you saying that? Well, we're not the ones who say that. It's actually the Bible. The Bible tells us that very thing, right? We're going to look at a couple verses here that tell us that. In Isaiah chapter 1, verse 2. Hear, O heavens, and give ear, O earth, for the Lord has spoken. Who's the Lord? The Lord is the creator of the universe. So the Bible is saying, the one who made you, the one who made me, the one who made everything around us, has spoken. These are his words. That's a big deal. If that's true, we better listen. We better listen. Another verse, John chapter 8, verses 31 to 32. Here's Jesus. And Jesus said to these Jews, these Jews believed in him. And he said, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples. And you will know the truth. And the truth will set you free. So we set this up and we say, okay, here's these people. And they believe. And Jesus 
makes a demand on them. He says, you believe, you must abide. And abide really just means to live in it, to put it into practice, to make a go at it in your life. So we step back and we say, well, why does Jesus demand a response? Jesus tells him something. Why does he demand a response, right? I stand up here and I can tell you guys all kinds of things. Or we can sit afterwards and we can talk face to face and I can tell you all kinds of things, but I can't demand a response. I don't have that authority. And I'm not authoritative. See, Jesus is authoritative. He is the last word. He can demand that response from us. Another place in Galatians chapter 3, verse 10, Paul quoting from Deuteronomy chapter 27, he says, It's written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. This speaks to the authoritative nature of the Bible. See what it says? If you don't do what it says, you're going to have a major pain in your life. If you don't abide, it's not going to go well for you. And we understand that. We have governmental authorities. And why do we have a fear of governmental authorities? Because they have that power to make a major pain for us when we don't. And that government authority is just a fraction of what the creator of the universe has. In James chapter 2, verse 10, he says, Whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point, one point, has become guilty of breaking all of it. Whoever fails at just one point, according to this verse, messing up just once is the same as what? Messing it all up. Doing it all wrong, right? We've given that illustration, right? I have my glass of water here because I'm kind of recovering here from a little bit of a head cold and I need to drink it here in a few minutes. But if, if I brought you a glass of water and said, oh, are you thirsty? Here, here's a glass of water. And you said, okay, that's cool. Where'd it come from? I said, well, I got, I, I got most of it from the, the nice filtered water we have back there in the cafe. And you would go, well, okay, you got most of it from there. Well, what do you, what's the rest of it? He said, oh, well, I went, also went to the bathroom and I used a little eyedropper and I reached into the toilet and I got one little drop and I put one little drop here in the glass. You'd be like, no, I'm good. <laughs> I would be, right? We go, okay, one little bit messes the whole thing up. The Bible has authoritative power. It has that authority because it is true and it is good. Second point we want to look at today is the Bible is sufficient. The Bible is authoritative. The Bible is sufficient. And sufficient just means it's enough. It's enough. Nothing more is required. It's just so simple. Nothing more is required. And you go, nothing more is required for what? Sufficient for what? That's nice. That's a nice statement. What does it mean? Sufficient for what? Four things. The first one today, it's sufficient for salvation. Sufficient for salvation. 2 Timothy 3, 14 and 15. As for you, continue in what you've learned, being acquainted with the sacred writings, which are able to make you wise for what? Salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. So we'd ask that question, and Jeremy mentioned it this morning. Is anything more important? Is anything more important than your eternal standing with God? Is there anything more important? I don't think there is. It's the most important thing. Thankfully, the Bible gives us all we need to know about how it works and what to do and how to get right with God. 
It's sufficient for salvation. It's also sufficient for sanctification. The next verse is right there in 2 Timothy 3. He goes on, he says, All Scripture, speaking of the Bible, all Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. Why? That the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. See, sanctification really just means the process of improvement. Uh, Because improvement makes us right with God, but improvement blesses our life. It's sufficient for sanctification. I love that word equipped that's in the verse there. Complete and equipped. If you go to the Greek, the Greek is... Exegeomani. That's a big word. Exegeomani. And it means outfitted or furnished. Right? I was thinking about this and I was thinking of like, oh, like a journey or, or like going on a backpacking trip. And those of you who know me know that I'm, I'm not really into camping, right? It's not really my thing. I love nature, but I love to go into nature and go back and stay in my hotel or in my home, right? So I'm like, ah, backpacking, right? And one of those things I probably don't like about backpacking is, oh, there's all this gear. I've got to sort of figure out how am I going to get all this gear and get it all together and put it and carry it with me and all this stuff. Is it going to work? Is it not, right? But I guarantee if one of you came to me and you were like, hey, Greg, got this idea. I got this really cool thing. Like, let's go backpacking. And I tell you what, I've got the whole setup for you. I got it all together for you. I got this pack. It's lightweight. It's going to fit you ergonomically. It's going to have all the tools you need in it, all the stuff you need. And frankly, the stuff that you can't carry, I'm going to carry. And we're going to go out, and we're going to go out there, and I tell you what, we're going to get there. I'll set up the camp for you. I'm going to take care of things. It's going to be great. You are going to be perfectly and completely outfitted and furnished for this backpacking trip. I tell you what, I'd be like, when do we go? Because they go, wow, I don't even have to think about that. I get to do this. This sounds fantastic. And that's what the Bible does for us. In this life, there is this process of sanctification, this process of getting our life better. And the Bible gives us, what does it say? Everything we need. Everything we need. It gives us the skills. It gives us the functional tools. It gives us the wisdom. It gives us the knowledge. It gives us everything we need for our life. In addition to sanctification, it's sufficient for hope. The Bible is sufficient for hope, and we sang about that some this morning. The synonyms for hope really just means patience, comfort. And we're not just interested in short-term home hope, right? I mean, I have a hope the Broncos are going to win this afternoon. But that's not really what we're talking about. That's not the hope we're talking about. We're talking about hope, patience, comfort. I want long-term hope, don't you? Don't you want hope for when we face death and we have to walk into that as people? It's the only certainty. And I want faith for what happens after that. I want hope for what happens after I die. So the most important things I think that we can have... And the scripture tells us right there in Romans chapter 15, whatever was written in former days is written for our instruction that through the endurance and through the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. We might have hope. See, it's great and important for us to just know about salvation. I can sort of know about it intellectually. I can know about what to do. But the human nature is designed to need hope. We need patience. We need comfort. And the Bible provides it to us. 
In addition to being sufficient for hope, the Bible is sufficient in blessing. And if we're going to get really honest, we all want blessing, don't we? I think we could say, oh, I don't really want it. Yeah, we all really want to see blessing. And be blessed in our lives. We do. And even in the most, at the least we go, all right, I'm going to have efforts. I'm going to make my life, I want it to at least count for others. I want to influence my children. I want to bless, see my children blessed. I want to see my church blessed. I want to see my neighborhood blessed. I want to see the world blessed. And I think that's a God-given desire. That's a God-given desire for blessing. But we can't put that first. When we pursue blessing from God, if we say my pursuit is blessing we're not pursuing God anymore. When we pursue blessing from God rather than letting blessing flow from God as we pursue him, I think that's sin. I think that's a problem. James chapter 1 verse 25 says, The one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, the scriptures, and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts, he will be what? Blessed. He will be blessed in his doing. He will be blessed in his doing. So first thing we do is we read it or we hear it. Then what do we do? We act on it. And then what happens? God's blessing and however he chooses follows along behind it. You hear me often here on this stage and in circles pray, Lord, help us to be doers of the word and not hearers only. And why do I pray that for us? For this very reason, because God's blessing follows after when we do what we've heard from the Bible. The Bible is sufficient in blessing. It's the starting point for all of that. All right, our sixth point, in addition to it being sufficient, it is effective. Sounds good, right? Don't we want everything that we have, everything that we do to be effective? I love this made in China. You know where I'm going with this, right? You ever order cheap Chinese stuff on Amazon? It's not very effective. <laughs> I've learned my lesson a few times when I've bought something. I go, oh, that price looks really good. And I don't look at the description that is like broken English. And I go, oh, great. And I get it and I bring it home and I use it like twice and it breaks. And I go, well, I guess I had that one coming. Right? And it's not just cheap Chinese stuff, right? Like I was thinking about a couple years ago, I had a Fitbit. I was pretty excited. Oh, I'm going to track my steps and you know, it's going to be kind of fun and get the app and do all these things. And it worked for about nine months and then it stopped working. I was like, man, that's not cool. And so I wrote and I was like, hey, I got this Fitbit and it stopped working. And they were like, well, you're like two weeks outside of warranty. So too bad for you. Get another one. That's literally what they said. I was like, that wasn't effective. I was pretty disappointed in that. And so we can look at the Bible and say, is the Bible effective? Does the Bible even claim to be effective? To do what we want? To do what we need? And the answer is yes. A couple examples of that. Isaiah 55, 10 and 11. As the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return there, but water the earth, making it bring forth and sprout, giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so shall my word be that goes out from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. Here God tells, tells us himself. He says, here's my word. I give it to you. And it will be effective. It will not malfunction. It will not break. It will not be empty. 
And if the Bible is what it says it is, it will effectively accomplish what God intends for it. 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 5, Paul says, Our gospel did not come to you in word only, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. When I read this, it says to me that the word just isn't a bunch of words. It just isn't a bunch of words. It has power behind it. And that power is the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit we see elsewhere in the Bible is God himself. And remember, is God all-powerful? Yes, he is. By definition, he is. And is God perfect? By definition, yes, he is. Therefore, his words come from an all-powerful and all-perfect source. They will accomplish their intended effects. It's inevitable. Now, there's a caution here about the Bible being effective, and that caution is that we have to be correct in our understanding and our use of the Bible. You know, I think back to my Fitbit, and I go, did I misuse that Fitbit, and that's why it broke? Well, it's possible. I don't think I did. Just in my own defense, maybe I did. But you could imagine, what if I'd gone swimming with it, and it stopped working, and I was like, why didn't you work? Well, I didn't use it right. You have to use it. You have to be correct in your understanding and use of something for it to be effective. And this is a caution because many, many people will attempt to use the Bible to promote promote their own message or agenda that has nothing to do with the Bible. An example, this week I heard of a politician who was trying to say the Bible suggests that life begins when we start breathing, not at conception. That was what he was trying to do. But we can reject this. Why can we reject this? I got a couple reasons for us today why we can reject this. First, I believe the Bible has objective, quantifiable meaning. When somebody says, "Uh uh-uh, it's open to interpretation, we have to ask, whose interpretation? And is that person trustworthy? Is that person trustworthy? In our example with this politician, that politician is not a trustworthy source for, for interpreting the Bible. That's for the case. We also have to ask, what is the motive for that person? What is their motive? If our motive when we interpret the Bible is, I want the truth, I'm looking for the truth, it's okay. If the motive is some, is some other agenda, then no, it's not. In our example, that politician, he just had a political agenda and he just wanted to use the Bible to sway voters to his opinion. Okay, we can kind of reject that. Now, can some things in the Bible have a variety of interpretations? Yeah, sure. There are some things, but not the main story, not the gospel, not the main message. There is a clear arc of truth that runs through the Bible. Like we said, it is consistent and coherent and easy to understand. And so I think a good policy when we're thinking about how do we interpret scriptures is to always, when we come to a passage and we go, this doesn't seem clear, I'm not sure how this works, we always try to interpret scripture, unclear scripture, in light of scripture that's clear. Now, in a few weeks, we're going to talk more about interpretation. So that's just a little taste there. The second thing that we can hold on to is that the Bible cannot mean what it has never meant. We can't suddenly decide today, I think the Bible means something different than it's never meant That's never held. You know, if everyone for all of time has understood the Bible to mean something, and then suddenly somebody says, nope, the Bible actually tells you the opposite thing, it's probably better to stand on the side of historical clarity than the side of this person who says it means something different than it's always meant. And in this example with this politician, the Bible has been understood for centuries since its beginning to say that life begins at conception, not at breath. So we shouldn't just suddenly reinterpret this. And all that's to say, it's just simply a caution. As you consider the effectiveness of the Bible, you've got to be correct 
your understanding and use of the Bible. So, final attribute that we're going to examine today is that the Bible is determinative. It is determinative. You might go, uh, what does that mean? What does that mean? What is determinative? Well, it means this. It means the power to fix, the power to settle, the power to define. It is determinative. Okay, does the Bible have the power to fix, to settle, or define? And the answer is yes. And the reason why is because how you respond to the Bible determines two really big things. One, the shape of your life. How you respond to the Bible changes exactly how your life is going to play itself out, however long we each have. In addition, even bigger issue, how you respond to the Bible is going to determine what happens to you for the rest of eternity. Some verses from the Bible that talk about this. John chapter 8, verse 47. Whoever is of God hears the words of God. The reason why you do not hear them is that you are not of God. This is Jesus talking, and he's saying, are you with God, or are you against God? Are you with him, or are you against him? And that's a powerful, scary question. Do you want to be against the creator of the universe? That doesn't sound like a good place to be, but it's an important question. The answer is made apparent how. Well, Jesus says it. Do you listen, and do you obey? Here's the words of God. Do you listen to them, and do you obey them? Or not. In other words, Jesus is saying the Bible is determinative. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 14. But a natural, which means an unspiritual man, does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him, and he cannot understand them because they're spiritually appraised. They're understood spiritually. And this verse tells us there's, the world is really broken into two kinds of people. That's it. It's just two kinds of people. It's very simple those who receive God's word and those who do not receive God's word. It's very simple. There's two groups. There's no, again, there's no middle ground. And we look at that and we go, well, why can't everybody be in the one camp? Why can't everybody receive God's words? Why don't they? Well, look at the verse. The verse tells us only the spiritual can. Only the spiritual. Well, how do we become spiritual? The Bible tells us we're dead. We're spiritually dead. We're all spiritually dead. Because of sin, our spirits are dead. Until what? Until the Holy Spirit revives us. So, only those who have been revived by the the gift of the Holy Spirit can understand God's words. God's words won't make sense completely until we've been revived by the gift of the Holy Spirit. You go, well, that's great. How do I get the gift of the Holy Spirit? Do I go to the department store and buy the gift? Do I just have to wait for somebody to give it to me? How do I get it? We place our faith in Jesus Christ alone. It's a free gift offered by God. In Ephesians chapter 1, verse 13, In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of salvation, and believed him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. Can you see it? When we believe, we receive the Holy Spirit, and we get understanding. Being spiritually minded is a simple and free gift, and it's offered to each one of us. All we have to do is receive it. Therefore, this is what I think is not what we do that determines our standing before God. It's not what we do. It's not all the good works. We don't line it up and say, I was good enough. That's backwards. It's our standing before God that determines what we do. 
We receive the Spirit by placing our faith in Jesus Christ. The Bible is determinative. It has the power to fix, to settle, or define for us. And so that brings us back to where we started last week, back to the Bible. Well, it either is all these things or it isn't. It's either a total waste of time or it's God's very words. Here's those seven things again. The Bible makes it unique. There's no other books that have all of these things. It is infallible. It is inerrant. It is complete. It is authoritative. It is sufficient. It is effective. And it is determinative. The Bible is unique from all of the books in these ways. There are none like it. Not even whatever Oprah has to share with us. There's nothing like it. But... This, I hope, leads you to another question. You go, great that the Bible is all of those things. How can I be sure that it's true? How can I be sure that it's true? Great that it has all that stuff. How do I know? And this is a great question. And if you have this question, or maybe you've ever had this question, I want you to know, just like I said last week, and we say all the time, we encourage honest questions like this in our church. The Bible encourages this. God wants you to ask questions like this. How can I know the Bible is true? But we have to go after the answers. We can't just sort of ask a question as a sort of, "Ah, I don't have to think about it because there's a question. We have to go after the answers. How can I know the Bible is true? Now, some religions, some faith systems would have the same question asked of them and they would say, okay, how do we answer this about our book? How do we answer this about our writings? And sometimes the answer would be, well, because the leader says that it's true and that's why it's true. Well, I do. I'm I'm just a leader. I don't really know if I'm that much of a leader. I'm here. I'm standing in front of you. I say it's true, but I'm not saying believe it's true because I say it's true. Far be it from me to say that. Some religions, some groups would say that. Others would say, well, we know that it's true because you can pray on it, you can meditate on it, and you can get this feeling in your heart that it's true. I go, well, that's a nice idea, but I think our hearts are probably pretty deceitful and our emotions are pretty deceitful, and I don't think that's a good way to do that. So how do we figure out whether it's true? Well, I'm going to leave you with a cliffhanger. Because I'm not going to talk about it today. Brad's going to start talking about it next week and I'll talk about it some more the week after that. There's much we can rely on. There's much we can point to for evaluating the truth claims of the Bible. In the next two weeks, we're going to ask and answer. And we're going to look at those truth claims and say, is the Bible true? Is the Bible authentic? How can we know about the authenticity and the truth of the Bible? And so I'm going to leave you with that today. I think that's a good place to stop. And I'll go ahead and pray and we'll close here. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. God, as I consider the Bible, I consider how unique, how unique it is. When I think about all these attributes, I go, wow, what an incredible book. I think if any person, even the smartest person in the world, the smartest group of people in the world set out to write a book They couldn't get all these things. They probably couldn't even get one. Maybe they could get one. And yet, God, you've written a book. God, and you've written this book, and you've written it with a bunch of different people, all of whom were sinners, none of whom were any better than anybody else. They were sinners like us. And you spoke through them to the words on the page. 66 books. 
written over the course of nearly 2,000 years. And yet it's clear and consistent and easy to understand and it has all of these attributes. So God is a church, Lord. I, I just, my prayer is that each one of us would look to the Bible and say, I want to be a person. We want to be people of this book. God, for Lord, I know there's many, many here who are, who are even asking some of these questions and going, well, I, I don't know, Lord. And I know that in just like a 30-minute message, I can't answer all the questions. God, thank you that you are a God that loves us so much. You welcome our questions. And you'll point us to good answers. Lord, as each of us walks through the faith journey here, help us to walk together to support one another, to ask and answer hard questions. Again, we thank you for the Bible. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.